Welcome to Ask the Therapist, a podcast for everyone who's fascinated about how our minds work, mental health and all things therapy. Ask the Therapist is hosted by me, Sarah Rees, a mental health nurse, cognitive behavioural therapist and author of the CBT Journal. I've over 20 years experience of working in the field of mental health and I hope to educate, entertain and simplify all things mental health and therapy. So sit back and enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to episode 11 of Ask the Therapist. My name's Sarah Reese, and it's lovely to have you here today. In this episode, I'm talking with Patricia Murphy. Patricia is a friend, really. We've known each other for quite a few years now. We met through the BABCP, which is the British Association of Cognitive and Behavioural Psychotherapies. So it's the accrediting body for CBT therapists. We were both been over the years and still are active members of the BABCP. We're not just accredited by them, but we have been involved in their branches and special interest groups. Most recently, within the last couple of years, we're both founding members of the Women and Gender Minorities Special Interest Group, quite a mouthful, but it's a group that's been developed to kind of raise awareness initially of the issues that face women and gender minorities and to hopefully then look at improving systems and protocols and collecting information and then putting on training to ensure that therapists are trained to the highest possible standard. I thoroughly enjoyed interviewing Patricia. I think you're going to be able to tell there's lots of giggles along the way. So sit back, relax, and I hope you enjoy. And if you want to be kept up to date with the episodes, don't forget to hit subscribe. And if you can, leave us a review. So hello, Patricia. Welcome to the podcast. It's lovely to have you here. Thank you for doing this for me. Thank you for asking me, Sarah. Pleasure. So you've had a wonderfully rich career. I know a little bit about it because we've got to know each other over recent years. Could you tell us about your career journey? Yeah, I can tell you about my career journey. It's, um, I, I suppose when I look back on it, it's, it's kind of weird sometimes to think about where you end up, particularly when I think about my kind of early life, which was kind of unpromising, really, growing up on a council estate without a great deal of money and kind of all the electrical equipment seemed to be running on a a meter and I think the family could be described as pretty dysfunctional in in many ways so yeah kind of failed 11 plus went to a catholic convent school where they specialize in kind of fear shame and humiliation so that wasn't a great experience but went on and did a levels and then really pissed about for a couple of years while I was there I, I think coming out of a very kind of structured rigid school setting to a college I felt all at sea I really didn't know what I was supposed to be doing there so kind of got involved in in the social life there but not much else can't remember doing much studying and there was no guidance available to me so it was really difficult to know what I wanted to do and so I did a range of retail jobs and then fell into care work in a care home and that was the start of my career I suppose in 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 healthcare so I I was working with uh, an Asian lady, an older lady who was a trained nurse and she was just lovely and saw something in me and said, you know, you really should go and do some training. So I thought, okay, I'll, I'll do that. So I applied to my local hospital to do nurse training knew nothing about it turned up and back in those days there were there was a I don't know if you remember this there was a two-year course SEN probably you don't remember this that had just finished I think yeah yeah so there was a state enrolled nurse and then there was the state registered nurse the state enrolled nurse training was two years so I was like okay I'll I'll do that because it's you know it's only two years yeah and luckily the tutor said to me well you've got the qualifications to do the longer course you you know you might want to think about doing that I was so naive so I was steered towards the SRN training so this was pre-Project 2000. So, right. you know, you spent some time in the classroom, but most of your learning took place on the ward. Mm. And I loved it from day one. Did you? I really did. Yeah, I loved the challenge of it. I loved the teamwork. I liked the fact that it was very kind of patient-centered and skills-based. So you learnt, you know, you learn on the patient, which sounds a bit kind of scary now. So, you know, doing your first <laughs> catheterization. With very limited knowledge of biology at that point, it's like, you know, it's like, whoa. But yeah, I became a dab hand at these techniques. I, you know, I I started to feel like I had some competency and some skill. 
And I like him, isn't it? When I trained, I started on the early Project 2000 and it was a lot more hospital-based. I know it's all shifted now. So experiences I don't think I'd have now on all the... I went into mental health nursing. But the general side of things, I did quite a bit of that. Yeah. No, I look back on it really fondly, like kind of glory days, really, where you could spend time giving somebody a bed bath after surgery, which I love doing. You yeah. know, just when people are at their most vulnerable, vulnerable, being able to make them feel human again. Um, you know, I, I loved all of that. Um, did my psych placement and thought, wow, it just opened up a whole different world. I mean, one of the things I became very aware of. So I when I qualified, I worked on a, a on a gynecological ward. And the water was divided into, you know, women who are having kind of surgery and maybe trying to hold on to their pregnancies and women who'd lost babies or had elected to have terminations. And absolutely no psychological care at all provided for for these women who are going through the most traumatic kind of experiences. So when I did my three month psyche placement, my tutor, a Nigerian man who was lovely, had said to me, I think you should go on. I was kind of deliberating about what to do after finishing my training. And he said, I think you should go on and do psychiatry. And I was the only one in my set who did that. And some of my friends were like horrified. It it was almost like you're throwing away your career. Why aren't you doing midwifery or something Mm. else? You know, people didn't kind of get it. It just felt like a downgrade. Yes. Yeah. It was always classed as not real. You're not a real nurse if you're a psychiatrist. Exactly. And I remember going back to the hospital where I trained. I was about a year into my post-reg training to meet some old friends. And there was such a big gulf between us by that stage, you know, because they had their vision and view of nursing. And mine was completely different. And it just felt like we couldn't bridge that that gap. Oh, Uh, yeah. Yeah, I think it was a shame. But I went and did my training in a in a large asylum in in Epsom, which is now kind of private housing, luxury flats. And that was a massive shock being there because they were still back then. So that would have been 1983. They were using something called deep insulin narcosis therapy. Oh, gosh. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, it was basically putting patients who were treatment resistant, and I'm putting that in air quotes, into comas using insulin in the hope that that would somehow reset them. So dangerous. No scientific evidence behind this treatment whatsoever. They were using ECT very, very freely. There was a lot of kind of violence on the wards from staff to patients. Speaking up, you were kind of faced with intimidation by nurses who'd been institutionalised and had gotten used to running things in a particular way. It was a really frightening environment to work in. What kept you at it, do you think? Well, I'm not a quitter, generally. So if I start something, I'm, I'm going to finish it. And I knew that, you know, there was a big movement on its way where the wards were going to be closed and community care, you know, there's a lot, lot of talk about transferring the care into the community. So I knew there was a change on the way and I wanted to be part of that change I so as soon as my career at um as a support worker doing the care in the community so closing down the huge asylums yeah putting people that had lived in these phenomenal buildings into three bedroom semi-detached houses yes yeah just felt very cruel I don't yeah. know what was going on wasn't right but for some people, it's been their lives for years, hasn't it? Yeah, you know, you're, you're so right, Sarah, because there was a lot that was wrong with these asylums. There was also the potential for for asylum, for safety. And, you know, there was some good practice as well. You know, amidst all, all this horror, you know, there, there, was a, there was some occupational health. So there were gardens for people to cultivate. There was actually a theatre group and there was a stage at Horton Hospital where I trained and the patients would put on productions. You know, there there were resources there. They weren't utilised as well as they could have been. And the ethos, the culture needed to be developed. But you could see how there, you know, there were resources that could have really made a massive difference to the lives of these patients. And like you say, they'd gotten used to the routine. Yeah. And and used to purpose and jobs and functions. 
in the hospital yeah. and, and then they couldn't leave a, ha- a tiny house without two people or something yeah or, yeah yeah so it's, it's interesting that I was in the middle of that and you were you you started your career just as that change was starting to happen so yeah. I remember it being a very exciting time and a very Literally. everything's going to change and it's going to be for the better and yeah yeah yeah, yeah there were there were high hopes Yes. Whether those hopes have been realised, I think um, that's another issue altogether, isn't it? So I left Horton as soon as I qualified and went to Charing Cross Hospital and worked on the psych unit, the third floor there. And that was, a, it couldn't, the contrast couldn't have been more extreme. So the staff were incredible. I think it was probably professionally one of the happiest times of my life, working with the doctors, nurses, occupational therapists, they were really progressive and, you know, didn't pay lip service to teamwork. It really felt like you were part of a team there. And it was just incredibly rewarding and satisfying. And I also met my husband there. So that's that's why it holds a special yeah, place in my heart. It was just an amazing experience. He was a junior doctor and he, yeah, so we worked together there. And I think the day I realised that this guy was special was we were working the same shift together and a policeman had brought one of our absconding patients back onto the ward and as he kind of deposited him on the ward he said to my husband here you can have your nutter back and my jaw just dropped but my husband kind of kind of put down his pen and paper and said right kind of followed the policeman down the corridor brought him back into the ward sat him down at the nurse's station and just explained to him calmly but assertively why he never wanted him to deliver a patient back to the ward using those words again. Ah. <laughs> and, I, and I thought, that's my guy. Oh. That's the guy for me. Oh, that's a lovely story. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That sounds like a really special time. It was a special time, yeah. So I worked there for about 18 months, I think, maybe, and then got itchy feet and got this idea that I wanted to travel and applied to go and work in Australia. So went off to Australia. I felt like I'd been transported back to my asylum days because they were so behind. I remember one of my first shifts, it was about three o'clock in the afternoon, and patients started walking towards me along the corridor, just taking their clothes off. And I was saying to the sister, what, what's going on? And she said, oh, they're all going to have their bath and shower before they go to bed. I'm like, it's three o'clock in the afternoon. She said, yeah, we like to get them in bed by six. It was like, you know, it was just, oh, it was just awful. It was just inhumane, and yeah, I mean, wor- words fail me when I think back to that to that time. Just the the kind of practices that that went on, and and you know, I did challenge them, and it was a bit of a battle. But it was a battle I think I had some success in to the degree when I actually left to come home to England. The ward sister brought lots of the patients to the airport to. Wave goodbye, and I think we reached some kind of accommodation. It was kind of hard work, and they were resistant at first, but we managed to kind of together change the way the ward functioned. It was quite. It was in the end, it was quite a good experience, and and I I suppose taught me something as well about how to create behaviour change. Yes, and, and try and get people on board with that. Yes. Because often challenges just absolutely block. People get so defensive and shut yeah. down, don't they? Especially when to- it's, you know, some pommy bitch that's come over, you know, onto <laughs> the board who they don't know from Adam. You know, it's not going to go down well. So I think, you know, I had to be I had to be kind of careful about how I went went about things. But, yeah, so that was that. Came back to England and then ended up working. It was a new post. So it was called a link community nurse. So I was working with the homeless people in central London, in Victoria, with homeless mentally ill people and going into Salvation Army hostels and providing um, kind of psychoeducation for the staff and basic living skills for for the residents. And I loved that job. It was really, it was, you know, it was, it was, it was a very innovative post. Unfortunately, there was a, a massive political crisis in Victoria where there was a move to get rid of the homeless population out of Victoria to secure votes for the Conservative Party. So a lot of the people who'd come out of the asylums in Epsom ended up in these hostels, and then they were moved and dispersed all around the country out of Victoria. 
Um, it was a real kind of political crisis. And I don't think anybody actually paid the price for that in the end. But yeah, so that was, uh, that was an interesting time. And then went to the Maudsley and worked as a CPN for, God, years. I was quite a, a, a long time there. That's a psychiatric nurse. Yeah, yeah. Which that that was a great job as well. It was, you know, obviously really diverse. I loved working in South East London. I lived in South East London, have a soft spot for yeah. that area, the diversity, the community, kind of strength in that area, the way kind of, you know, diverse groups would form together to provide support for, for their own. Um, and to provide kind of representation and advocacy, particularly for kind of Black Caribbean people yeah. in the area. So there's a lot of community resources, a lot of activism. And then moved to Kent and worked as a CPN there for a while and just got kind of disenchanted with the way things were going in the NHS. I felt constricted. I felt like I was always complaining and irritating managers by complaining. And decided that I probably wasn't going to be able to change the way things were going. IAPT hadn't come in, but we were being limited in the number of sessions that we could uh, see people for. And I just found it really restrictive. Yeah. And I felt like it was making me unwell. Yeah, I know. Um, when I was a community psychiatric nurse, I used to have about 18 clients on my caseload. And they really varied. I'd always have two or three that were unwell and that I was seeing sometimes daily. But most yeah. people quite well I was doing rehab work and I'd see from the young to the very old now I know in that where I used to work they have 32 people on their caseload yeah and none of them are in recovery that's yeah. awfully unwell with half the beds that I used to I mean it's just the landscape is completely different yeah I mean, I think that, you know, the caseloads were ridiculous, the lack of support. You know, back at the, in the Maud, uh, days of my, uh, when I worked at the Maudsley, we worked very closely with social workers as well. And our role was really broad. So we would do a lot of work with housing and benefits. And it felt really rewarding. It felt like you could make a substantive difference to the quality of people's lives. And I just felt like that that was just getting eroded all, all the time. So I made the decision. I came home one day, I think, really angry and upset. And my husband had said to me, you don't have to keep doing this. You could you could do something else. And it had never occurred to me. Mm. Um, you know, I've been working in the NHS all my adult life, pretty much. The idea of leaving it was terrifying. But I knew I couldn't go on the way I was going. And thought yeah I'm just gonna I'm just gonna leave and see if I can strike out on my own it's so scary isn't it and I think it's I don't know if it's just for nurses but when you train to be a nurse you think this is this is it I think I think that's true and your whole identity is is kind of tied in with it isn't it yeah yeah I was devastated to leave the NHS. It was such a tough job. Yeah, yeah. I think I cried almost nonstop for 24 hours when I actually left. Did you? I, I cried every day from handing my notice in every day until I left. And then something switched. But I yeah. was so upset at letting yeah. it go. Yeah. And I, I, think, I think it's important that that is talked about because uh, this is not an easy decision. You know, if you've worked in the NHS, and I'm a strong supporter of the NHS, but I think the NHS, as we know from, you know, a lot of studies that have been done, has become a really difficult place for for people to work. It's in crisis. Yeah, I started to feel like I was supporting something unpleasant. I felt like my staff, the staff were being bullied. I'd walk into the office, people didn't have time to speak to each other. Often people were in tears. I felt like I was condoning something, staying there. Just yeah. The, the, the day I made the decision to leave, I was exhausted and I was really looking forward to a holiday. So it was my last day before a holiday. And I'd done, I'd worked, I think, uh, probably an hour and a half over my allotted hours. So I was really keen to get home and kind of said goodbye to people in the office. Nobody said, have a good holiday. Walked to my car feeling really dejected you know it's like even the basic kind of common courtesies had got eroded people were so up to their ears in stuff yeah that so I walked to my car thinking Jesus you know nobody even said have had a good holiday and I was putting the key into into the lock back in those days um and, and one of my colleagues rushed out and I thought oh they've remembered 
and she said to me oh could you just do this depot on the way home <gasps> and I thought I just thought fuck this I'm I'm out of this this is not right I said I did I said no I'm I'm on I'm going on holiday now yeah and and I think that was you know it, it was just testament to the stress everybody was under yeah um that you know you, you just didn't feel cared for you didn't feel seen mm. you know as long as you were punching in the numbers so yeah and and I was so lucky because I'd I'd forged a really good relationship with the GP practice that I was uh, assigned to yeah and they you know were very keen to try and keep some contact with me so I kept them posted on what I was doing and then I know I've spoken to you about this before I, I you know rented a room from them and I've been with that GP practice so I work within an NHS GP practice I see lots of NHS patients mm. who either can't access IAPT or who have had an unsatisfactory experience with IAPT mm. and I've been there for 20 years delivering cognitive behavioral therapy delivering CBT therapy yeah wow fantastic so you said that you just fell into being a kind of into the caring profession what drove you to be a therapist do you think there's more behind that I think really the caring thing was just a natural progression of what I was doing at home uh, so I was doing a lot of caring at home and um, I think what was nice about doing it as a professional is you <laughs> you know it's very different being a professional carer rather than having that role forced upon you kind of as a child in your, in your home so yeah I think those skills I think I always I had that tendency to care and I think that was fostered by my early experiences in in my family so I guess it was nice to be able to kind of transfer those skills into a different arena and an arena where the expectations were different and I had more freedom and less kind of emotional I suppose baggage involved so doing it from a kind of different perspective yeah yeah very passionate about people's stories you forgot to mention that you're an absolutely wonderful writer as well aren't you and oh Sarah thank you used to write for CBT today I know you've done other articles and you're very passionate about people's stories can you tell us a little bit about that well I think you know stories are the lifeblood aren't they of the work that we do you know stories have nurtured and nourished me ever since I could read so I've always loved reading and I've always loved loved stories and I think patient stories should be at the forefront of what we do you know we, we should be asking who is this person in front of me especially in CBT sometimes and that's one criticism for CBT isn't it that yeah it's just kind of very symptom focused in the here and now but I think you know, I don't think all of CBT therapists work like that. I know I'm no. very passionate about the story of people's lives and who they, I want to know the person in front of me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a couple of things I just wanted to quickly say about that. One is um, there's a, a book that's recently been published called The Heartland by Nathan Filer. So he wrote a book called The Shock of the Fall and did an interview with me for CBT Today. Um, but he's, he's written this book. It's not a novel, but it's a, a kind of exploration of particularly schizophrenia and what that actually means and diagnoses and how patient stories get lost. And patient stories are at the centre of this book. Oh, and wow. it's, it's an absolute must read, I think, okay. for all health professionals and a call for us to put patient stories at the centre of everything that we do. During the week, I got um, an email. You might have got it in your inbox, too, from a, a tech company developing software. And it's called CBT Helper. And there's a little video and it says, you know, as therapists, we rely on information from our patients. And, you know, we need to know about their mood patterns, how they think and behave and what are their triggers. And wouldn't it be great if we didn't have to waste time finding out that in a therapy session, if we could just focus on teaching people skills and it really annoyed me. Uh, you know, it just put me off my lunch. I opened it before lunch and I thought, really, is this, you know, this is the CBT helper, which is, you know, takes away, I think, 
what's vital and essential about the work that we do, which is having conversations where we understand our patients. And it's not just about mood patterns and triggers. It's about so much more than that. So much more happens from just being sat face to face with somebody, validating and hearing and connecting and being with another mind. Exactly. You know, because I I do a lot of supervision for people and they are very much in fix-it mode and it's like, just be sometimes. Yeah, yeah. And because if if you don't, you don't pick up on those kind of moment-to-moment sensitivities in a session, which can be so important and so revealing. And I just thought, you know, if if I was allowed to have a CBT helper, I'd want somebody who could make me a cup of tea and give me a foot massage. I don't want something that's kind of monitoring. And the graphics are really annoying as well. So it's the the CBT helper, I think is called Oki, and it's like a little blue sperm. Everything about it just irritated me. And yeah. and I think it gives CBT a bad rep. I really do. Yeah. I think it just opens us up to ridicule. You know, there's this idea that if you go to one CBT therapist, if you go to five C- CBT therapists, they should all come up with the same kind of formulation and the same, you know, processes and ways of working. And I, I don't agree with that. You know, we're not droids. No. And different patients respond to different therapists in different ways. Absolutely. And, you know, so I will have seen someone who maybe has seen someone, you know, an IAPS therapist, for example, not necessarily, it doesn't have to be. And I might get, you know, a clinical summary and then the patient will talk to me and the information I get is can be very, very different. Those kind of summaries, I just forget and just go blankly into. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? And then when you go back and read it, I've had that experience. It's completely different. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I think that we, you know, we mustn't forget that. And I, and I think the Nathan Filer book is a really important kind of reminder and clarion call that we are doing ourselves and our patients a massive disservice if we don't pay enough attention to the story and the complexities of everybody's story. You know, I don't know about you, but I I never see a straightforward, simple case. No. Because people no. aren't straightforward and simple, they're complicated. Yes, we're all complicated. That's our minds, isn't it? Yeah. Our theories yeah. are so varied. Absolutely. That's a lovely way of articulating that. What do you think you've learned most working with people and people's distress? I suppose that we're we're all the same, but we're all so different. And that sounds kind of yeah, I mean that's and that's where the the challenge of the job and the joy of the job and the pleasure for the job comes from is that you know we have we've got some understanding of what humans need and how they work but every patient that you see is so different and and I I I still get excited with every new patient that I see it's fascinating isn't it it's absolutely fascinating and I, and I have grown, I don't know if this happens to you, and I think it, it, it probably happens to a lot of CBT therapists where there are almost kind of set pieces that we have in terms of describing anxiety or panic mm. or depression. And I don't know if sometimes it, 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 it can sound repetitive to me. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm really interested in, in constantly updating the way I explain things to people. And to find ways that resonate with them as well. And and I think being very aware of what's going on politically and culturally, and I really like pop culture, is a really good way of updating the way we explain things to people. So whether you've read a poem or a book or you've seen a series on Netflix that, you know, somebody else has seen. I mean, there was I saw somebody recently who'd watched the Ricky Gervais um, Netflix special Afterlife, which oh, is yeah. a kind yeah. of study in grief. And uh, one of my male patients had said, um, who, who was suffering a bereavement, had said, I don't know if you've, you've seen it. And I said, yeah, I have seen it. And so we were able to use that in session because yeah. it, it really spoke to him. Yeah. So I think I think having that I suppose I've got a bit of a hive mind in that sense. I like to know what's going on out there. Yeah. And because I like to know the references that people might use. Mm. They can be so helpful. 
Yeah. So we're always learning, aren't we, in this yeah. job. It's it's a constant kind of, and that's what keeps it so exciting and enjoyable. And I think the one thing that I you alluded to at the beginning is that we we have this special kind of thing that when people walk into our door, they are very vulnerable and often they they really want help. So they're very open and honest about what's going on. And we know that we're, we're all struggling. We're all so similar, aren't we? But we're all, yeah. so many people think everybody else has got it together and I haven't. But I think yeah. one thing that I've learned is that we all struggle with pretty much the same stuff. And then there's lots of individuality with that. Yeah, yeah. So moving on now, we've both been quite active in the BABCP. And the BABCP stands for the British Association of Behavioural and Cognitive Psychotherapies. And it's our accrediting body. And we've been part of establishing a new special interest group within BACBCP, which is the Women and Gender Minority Special Interest Group. I don't know why we have to have the longest (laughs) name. It sounded good. It could have been longer. (laughs) It could have been longer, I know. So you are co-chair of this group. Can you tell everybody why this was established and a little bit about what this group hopes to provide and offer and why it's so important? I mean, it's very on trend, isn't it? You know, with the Me Too and movement. Yeah, I mean, I think the time was right. And, uh, you know, the kind of conversations I was having with my colleagues around, you know, women's rights, transgender rights, these were conversations that I think I wasn't hearing being promoted by our organisation. I think they've done a lot of work on equality and, and, and culture and the Equality and Culture SIG have done just incredible work in um, educating people and I think they're just, they've launched their kind of BAME guidelines as well, which I think, it, you know, is hugely commendable. But I didn't feel like there was a platform f- particularly for women and gender minorities. And like you say, the time was right. There'd been so much going on kind of internationally, the Me Too movement. Attention had been brought to the gender pay gap, um, the discrimination that gender minority groups were facing, this kind of structural racism and the particular challenges that were being faced by our BAME patients and colleagues. Uh, the kind of underrepresentation, the discrimination, you know, the intersection between all these different um, strands needed to be addressed. And so I think you were, we were, um, we were we'd been at a, a CPD event, hadn't we? Yeah. And we were having dinner and I'd had a bit to drink and I think you might have had a bit to drink. Yeah. And, and it was a really, it was a bit of an underwhelming CPD event. And the women were all down one end of this uh, restaurant table and we were kind of, we need to start speaking up. You know, we've got abilities and we've got skills that we could bring to this. Mm. Let's do something about it. And so, yeah, so the, the, the SIG was launched and it's been it's been a really difficult year since the launch so hasn't it but I think when you're trying to change cultures or kind of raise awareness this is tough it's not sexy is it no it's not for the for the faint-hearted and we were so full of enthusiasm and we'd set up that launch event and we had the MP Jess Phillips who'd agreed to come and do a kind of an inaugural address we had a poet and um, academic Kate Fox was going to do a set and we had Mary Welford who was going to do a whole day on kind of compassionate mind approaches to improving self-confidence and encouraging women to find their voice and speak up and we just didn't get the numbers and that was so demoralizing and we've put on another event since which went very well but again the numbers were modest Mm. and so that gave us kind of pause for reflection and we kind of realized that the BABCP doesn't really have the framework in place to support the activities of the SIG and the, the other thing is it's a special interest group but our feeling is very much that it shouldn't be it shouldn't be niche that the kind of values that we have and, and the aims which are all up on the BABCP website should be embedded in the culture of the organization so we have been kind of busy working behind the scenes contributing to and advocating for a, um, a review of the minimum training standards and we put forward wording for that so hopefully training in these issues will be seen as well they will be necessary in order for for CBT therapists to practice effectively 
We've contributed um, fully to the call for feedback regarding the BABCP draft strategy document. We are aware that they don't have a um, diversity policy, a clear equality and diversity strategy. So we know that the BABCP are looking to implementing that as well. At the moment, they don't collect data regarding gender. So there's a lot of information and structure that's not there to support the activities of the SIG. And quite honestly, I just don't think the membership were ready for our jelly back then. (laughs) No, they weren't. They weren't. They just weren't ready. And that's, you know, and that needs to change. Which I think is changing, isn't it? It's been, you know, they are updating things. They are considering things now from what have been raised and they're putting in standards. And CBT therapists will have to attend training, won't they, on city gender. And that is so important. So I think, you know, the group will continue. I think what we've kind of decided is that before we start thinking about future events, we really need to have this kind of framework in place. Yeah. um, Because it has to be supported by the organisation overall. Otherwise, you know, we're not going to take off. That said, I think that individual members of the committee are all working in their own individual ways to kind of promote the values of the SIG Mm. as well. And, you know, so, for example, Anne Moulds and the amazing work that she's done in Scotland in bringing anti-stalking laws into being and she won an Inspirational Woman of the Year Award. All the work that you've been doing, the work that Rachel does in Nottingham with transgender organisations and the survey that she produced that went out to all our members. So I think, you know, there's a lot that we're doing kind of day to day to uphold the values of the SIG. But, you know, obviously we want to we want to expand that. We want to get more members involved and we certainly want more diversity on the committee. We're really, really keen to, to achieve that. Yeah, and lots of therapists listen to this podcast. So if somebody wanted to get involved, what do they need to do? Yeah, I think, you know, they just need to contact the uh, Wimjean SIG. So all the details are on, on the BABCP site. We are very happy to welcome new committee members and any members who've got a kind of a particular interest or they would like to be co-opted on to do a particular piece of work, you know, would be very, very keen to hear from people. So I'll put all the links to everything on the on the show notes so people can kind of follow it up there. So that's fantastic. Really exciting times, isn't it? But it's a it long journey, a long It's run. a long journey, yeah. And I think, you know, we can get impatient and I do I'm you know, I'm not the world's most patient person. But yeah, if you like you say, if you want something to change, then you you kind of have to be in it for the long haul and 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 it's about keeping energy levels up as well and I think that's really really important that you know BABCP do everything that they can to support this new endeavour yeah yeah and I think they're getting there they we've we've turned up the volume a little bit yeah so going back to kind of the therapy side of things are there things that you do in terms of self-care and looking after yourself to keep your mental well-being good because I suppose as therapists we use our our mind is the tool we use for our job isn't it so yeah yeah for your well-being and mental health Uh, I mean loads of things and probably loads of things that loads of other people do I mean I think you've got to keep your ass moving yeah. and, um, you know, cause sit- sitting down all day is not great. No, and, and my capacity, you know, I'm, I'm kind of postmenopausal. And so I feel like, you know, my body needs different things, but I just need to be more mindful of the things that my body needs at this stage in, in, in my life. And one of the things it really needs is, is activity. I'm like a dog. If I don't get three walks a day, I'm just not happy. Yeah. You know, I need, I've always been a kind of fidgety person. Uh, you know, it drives my family mad. Kind of sitting still is hard for me. And I found my tolerance for sitting in my office chair for six, seven hours. I find that really, really hard. Yeah. So, you know, I, I try and keep moving kind of in between sessions when I get home on my days off. I think, it, and I just feel good when I'm, when I'm moving. Yeah. So yeah. really to know yourself knowing what you need and it changes as it we change over time yeah. absolutely and you, you kind of need to be mindful of that I read a lot I find that really relaxing I love poetry I get, I've got involved in my local kind of community poetry group 
which has attracted the interest actually of uh, local psychological psychology researchers at the university. So I've done a piece for CBT today. It's going to be a, a two-parter, yeah, on the value of poetry and psychological well-being. I know sleep is a is something that you've talked a lot about and written about, and it's yeah. just so important, isn't it? Oh, I think it's the fundamental thing. I mean, I had chronic fatigue a few years ago and slept an awful lot. And, and sleep is the one thing that I've really worked hard to get right. And I'll be doing a workshop in September, actually, called Supercharged Sleep. So the general public. Yeah. Get our sleep right, so much else falls into place. I mean, I'm a rat bag if I don't get eight hours. I'm really- yeah. You know, and as you get older, your face doesn't stay still you know it feels like it moves around if I have sleep enough sleep I feel like I haven't left half of my face on the pillow (laughs) what is that about yeah and that is a good feeling yeah it's a good feeling to to look recognizably like yourself in the morning yes it is yeah so sleep music I you know I love music I always have live music I need to to listen to that I really liked the poet Seamus Heaney when he died his last words to his wife were in Latin and they were don't be afraid and I just think that's a really important message for all of us yes it is yeah that's really afraid and and just to go for things um and that can be silly little things like like I was, um, I went to see Stevie Wonder in Hyde Park last weekend and oh, wow. I just sat, sat down next to this uh, this woman and just started talking to her and we had the most amazing kind of conversation and at the end of the gig, you kind of gave each other a hug, you know, there was this real connection and I just think there's so many times we could probably miss out on stuff because we're fearful of, you know, being vulnerable, exposing ourselves. What if you start a conversation and nobody answers back or they don't want to speak to you? Or I think you've just got to fear. Connection, I feel, is the thing that's getting really diluted in our culture. You know, like yeah, having a sperm as a CBT helper or whatever that was. Exactly. I mean, who needs that? <laughs> I know. <laughs> And, you know, CBT on the internet and, and things like that. And, yeah. and and we're just so glued to our phones and social media and there's we have access to too much information. Yeah. Barely time to speak to each other. So that's yeah. probably it's it. I know it's... Yeah. So, I mean, when I say read, I mean like a proper book as well because I, I, I was aware that I'd got into this um, pattern of reading these little snippets of information on my phone. Yeah, and it made it started to make me feel really agitated because I wasn't processing it properly, and I'd read it and then I'd forget it. But w- if I read a book and that has my sole attention, I absorb the information in a very different way. Mm-hmm. I found it, I find it so much more pleasurable and relaxing. And so, you know, I probably shouldn't buy more books, but I I'm always buying books. But then I recycle them. You know, I pass them on. And I find it so much more rewarding than reading something on a on a phone or a tablet. Yeah. And I've got a group of um, girlfriends and we used to, one would read a book and then we'd all share it around. And then we all got Kindles and that just stopped. And we've just started buying a real book. And yeah. it means that I read stuff because my best friends have read it. I want to read it. Yes. I yeah. have picked it up. I love yeah. that. So going back to old fashioned stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I don't think it will ever go out of fashion, actually. Books, they're, they're always, they, they are the real deal. Yeah. And if somebody was considering therapy, is there any advice you'd give them? You know, I guess the kind of things like making sure that people are kind of accredited so they've reached a certain standard of kind of training and expertise, although that's no guarantee. You know, when we set up the SIG, it was interesting, some of the opposition that we had to that from members who expressed some very kind of dubious concerning views about whether racism existed and whether Mm -hmm. sexism was actually a problem so you know being accredited is not a guarantee that you're gonna you you know you're gonna find someone do you really need to do your research on your therapist you need to do your research you need to trust your gut when you meet someone as well I suppose be suspicious of anyone who thinks that they've got all the answers. Be suspicious of anyone who's not interested in your story, who doesn't yeah. give you the time to tell your story. 
That's really good advice, yeah. Going back to you, if you could go back to your 15-year-old self who was having, not focusing on her, on a career at all by the sounds of it, what would you say to her? It would literally blow my 15-year-old mind <laughs> if, I, if I started talking to them now because I think my brain has changed since then yeah. and my 15-year-old self would, would think I was talking in a foreign language. Yeah. I, th I think what would interest me more would be the questions and these are questions that I think about in relation not just to myself but to my patients as well is how did I get to be the way that I am so mm. you know you look at some patients I think about it in relation to myself as well and it's you look at what they've managed to do where they are and it's like finding seashells on the Himalayas or discovering that there are seabeds kind of kilometers down below the ground it's it's so unexpected yeah you know where I am now I couldn't have imagined it my 15 year old self could not have imagined the kind of life that I oh. have lived and, and, I, and I would say particularly since I met my husband mm. and I do think that love you know, if you're lucky in life and, you know, to have a good life, you do need to have some luck. Luck yeah. is a yeah. huge part in people's yeah. lives. Yeah. And love can be for many, many people absolutely transformational. So if I think about the things that I've done, the way I think about things, the quality of the relationships that I've got in my life, the experiences that I've had, my 15-year-old self would not have been able to imagine it. So I'm more kind of interested and marvel also in my patients. How on earth did you get to where you are now? Even though they're, you know, they're, they might be in distress. I think looking at the, the huge strengths and yeah. courage that people have that they don't realize that they have. I mean, you, I'm sure you've heard this when you feed back to patients, yes. how you see them. Yes. They're often amazed yes they don't see themselves through that same lens no no absolutely and it's, and it's so important that you know I did um I did a an audio with a patient that I worked with 20 years ago for the listening project and one of the things that she really liked about the conversation we had was me telling her how I saw her which was very different from how she saw herself mm. and from day one the first day I met her I thought this is a really impressive person Yes. And sometimes people struggle to hear it or they think that you're just very, you're just saying that to me. Yeah. But I don't do that. If I, what I say to people, I mean it from a heart because I think if you, you can't try it on, you have to be authentic or otherwise, yeah. you know. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it, it's getting people to hear it as well. So I think that, you know, that's what, what's yeah. kind of interesting yeah. to, to me is how, you know, how do, how do people make it? Yeah. You know, how do, how, how, how do you make it? I, you know, I think there's a, there's something that we don't understand about, you know, about human experience and, and what it is that makes it possible for some people to transcend the difficulties they've had or to be able to grasp and use the opportunities once they've been given to them. That's lovely, really lovely. So I think that's a lovely point to end on that because I think it's going to give so much for people to reflect on and think and digest and I've just really enjoyed interviewing you today and finding out a lot more about you I think you have a lovely take on things and you know we were saying about what would you advise somebody if they were looking for a therapist what would you advise them and I think one of the things now because we have the ability to put ourselves out there socially, you know, on social media and websites. And, and I must say, I went back to your website recently to kind of have a think before this interview, and it's a beautifully written website. And I think that's, you know, you really get a feel for who you are. And I think that's important when you're kind of looking for a therapist, isn't it? So I'm going to link to your um, website and I think everybody should just go and have a read. It's so authentic and an individual to you and it's your personality through and through. It's lovely. Yeah, well, I think, you know, I think my message to all CBT therapists would be to not lose that to not lose your individuality because I think it's I think there's a risk isn't there that the kind of creative artistic side of the work that we do can get lost and there was a I'm just going to finish this one thing so I was reading 
a book by Audrey Lord, who is a, a black um, feminist um, poet, and she wrote something about, oh, let's see if I can remember it. So often we're made to feel like we have to choose between the soul of poetry and the theory of mind. And I think good therapy combines those two things. So we are allowed to express ourselves. As therapists, I think we have to be allowed to express ourselves and not feel constrained by protocols and, you know, this idea that if you go off piste and you, and you don't, you know, you don't stick to within these kind of parameters that you're doing yourself and your patient a disservice. I completely refute that. I think going off piste is often where the, really interesting things can happen that doesn't mean to say that you don't need to have a structure and you don't need to you know have you know some kind of working formulation that you've you've genuinely con- collaborated on with your patient yeah but you need to be yourself you need to hold on to that because ultimately that's what patients remember when patients when I get recommendations uh, see patients that have been recommended to me they don't say to me um somebody had CBT from you um, and found it really helpful, they say you really helped them. I think that's interesting. Yes. So keeping, so being a human being in the therapy room. Yeah. And we have supervision, don't we, to support us on that? Because I, I totally agree with you. I think, I think when people are looking for a therapist, they're looking for a person, not somebody who can explain the panic model really well. Yeah. so I try and get my personality through. Some people like it, some people that won't. But I want the people that do like it to come and see yeah. it. Yeah. And we have supervisors. We regularly meet with people that help us and support us in how we deliver therapy. So yeah. that can contain us, can't it, keep supported. But, yes, I totally agree. Human beings in the, in the therapy yeah. room yeah. that are making sense of it all together. That's lovely. And if people want to kind of get in touch with you or follow what you do, where are the best places? Yeah, I've been so kind of tied up with the kind of personal and professional things lately. I've not actually posted anything new on my website for a little while, although I will be putting up the um, poetry piece that I've done. And I've also, um, Nathan Filer, who I mentioned earlier, who's the author of Heartland, has agreed to do an interview with me. Um, on that book as well so I'll, um, Peter Elliott again has agreed to to include that in CBT today so I'd love uh, to share yeah, my, well. my website is patricia-murphy.uk okay I'll put a link yeah. to that and you're and active I'm, on Twitter aren't you yeah so it's at Miss P Murphy is my Twitter handle yeah I like Twitter I come to it and go away from it and come to it, but I like it. Yeah, yeah, nice yeah. Unity, isn't there? It on? is. It can be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, thank you very much. I thoroughly enjoyed that. Yeah, thank you, Sarah. <laughs>